conflict arises over several issues. And the point of this passage before us is not to analyze the issues. We're not going to look at what's right and what's wrong concerning what the church should be about. The point is to help us better understand the root cause of conflict. In other words, why does conflict even happen? And the response is then the culminating focus. In a sentence, you could say this. And if you're taking notes, this is the main point of the passage. James challenged the church to rightly understand conflict and instructed them on how to respond. This is a very practical passage before us. James challenges a condition in the church he's writing to and says, Surely there is conflict among you. Here's how you navigate it. And what practical instruction that is for us as well. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a soapbox sort of sermon. Right? I didn't, if, if this is your first time with us today, I want to explain to you how we navigate through Scripture. I don't want you walking in here in this isolated moment and saying, Man, uh, the pastor wanted to preach about conflict. Surely there's conflict everywhere. No, we work through Scripture carefully. We go chapter by chapter, chapter and verse by verse and principle by principle. And this is where we have arrived. We don't play some sort of Bible bingo week after week, right? We're not trying to, to, to make the patterns on the bingo card. We are walking carefully through Scripture. We let the Scriptures come to us in the order they come to make sure we're not shying away from the difficult parts like this morning. However, listen carefully. I do believe this passage arrives before us in a timely sort of fashion. Brother and sister, God is doing a great work among us. The church is on mission. The community has been brought to our doorsteps. Of course, as you know, the Learning Center will start here in just a couple of weeks. They've already started so much of their preparations. I sent an email out this past week, and if you didn't get that email, I encourage you to go, go find it. Dig it out of your inbox or your spam folder and read it. I tried to capture in that email my heart concerning what God is doing among us. On Thursday night, the, the Learning Center had kind of their first open house for families to come in and, and kind of learn the process, learn how the school was going to operate. They did some testing for the kids. And I purposefully did not tell our church about all this. I'll be honest with you. I didn't know what it was going to look like. Right? I, I didn't know what, how chaotic it might be. I didn't know the processes in play. I didn't want all of us there uh, observing them kind of like they're fish in a fish tank. Right? So we let them do their thing. But I was there. And what I witnessed was astounding. There were families in this building that I scarcely think would ever be in this building otherwise. A, a mom came up to me and she said, Pastor, please tell your church, I said, thank you. There were staff members from the school who came up to me and said, I've never seen anything like this. This is unbelievable. There was a volunteer here with the Boys and Girls Club. They're going to help provide some after-school care. Clearly someone who knows about community involvement and engagement came up to me and said, Pastor, I, I don't, I've never seen a church do this before. <laughs> this church, this community clearly has, has, or this church rather, has really opened the front door of this community, uh, to this community. Church, there's an opportunity 
for us. An opportunity for gospel witness. And like I said in the email this week, it is an occasion, if we're not careful, for distraction. That we'll miss it. That we'll be distracted by the hard things or the challenging things of this occasion. And so I do believe this word is timely. So I want us to listen carefully to this instruction. In a, in a sense that we consider it personally. The enemy is no doubt just as aware of this gospel-rich opportunity in front of us. We should be aware of his deception. We should be aware of our own hearts, and we should listen to this word before us that is timely. We should listen even as conviction comes. We should listen as his mercy shifts our focus from ourselves and to his grace. Would you stand with me and honor the reading of God's word? James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord is this. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its timeliness. Thank you for its goodness. Thank you for its challenge. Lord, as I have sat before it this week and been personally convicted and challenged, Lord, I pray that we also come before this table together and we take this seriously. God, use your word to do a work that only you can do. Lord, may it be for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The first five verses of this chapter bring the nature of conflict really into focus. You, you heard the pointed question that James began with. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Notice he doesn't ask as, as, as he was like curiously inquiring of them. He doesn't say, hey, are, are there any wars and fights among you? No, the implication is there are wars and fights among them. He makes an assumption, if you will, and it's a valid assumption 
And this leads us to this first challenge, if you're taking notes today, write this down. We must understand the seriousness of conflict. We got to understand and take seriously conflict, especially within the church. We got to understand the implications of that for our witness for the Lord. Because you see, his second rhetorical question directs our attention to the root cause of the conflict. Notice this second question there in verse 1. He says, don't they come? In other words, don't these wars and fights among you, don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? So already, just in verse 1, we get a sense of the seriousness of conflict. Notice in both of those questions, there's a word that comes up that conveys violence, that conveys intensity. Do you see it? It's a three-letter word. War right? War. War is a serious thing. Wouldn't we agree? Listen, he's making this a serious issue. He's saying this is, he personifies conflict, not as just a petty sort of squabble, but he says this is a war among us. Now, it's important that we keep in mind what we learned last week concerning wisdom. And if I was more ambitious, we would have preached from Last week's sermon all the way through this, but I knew better than that, and so we stopped last week. But they're very closely tied together, what we looked at last week and what we're considering this morning. Look carefully at verse 2. He says, You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. This word desire comes up. This word covet comes up again. Here's why this is significant. Look back at verse 14 of chapter 3. This is where we were last week. Look back there with me. He says, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, right? He's talking about this earthly sort of wisdom is what we considered last week. And envy and selfish ambition is at the root of all of that. But here's what's interesting. Although the word envy and covet are two different words in the English language, in the language this was written in, those two words are exactly the same from chapter to chapter. In other words, he's saying, listen, that covetousness or that bitter envy of chapter 3, when it is personified, it results in conflict. In other words, earthly wisdom, when you buy into it, it is what results in conflict. So the implication is this, conflict in the church arises when we embrace earthly wisdom. Now, if you have the sermon notes from last week, you're welcome to doze off for a minute. You can just pull those out because we're going to go right back through the characteristics of earthly wisdom because they're so intertwined. We've got to understand earthly wisdom and how it comes into play in church conflict. Three things we considered last week and we need to be reminded of this week. Earthly wisdom perpetuates chaos. Remember that? Earthly wisdom is what causes disorder, we read in chapter 3. It perpetuates chaos. It is what creates the difficulty. It is what creates the difficult environment. But look now at the end of verse 2. He talks about this war that's happening. Now, I, I, I kind of like watching military movies. And some of y'all might be fans of those yourselves. And one of my favorite movies was Saving Private Ryan. You might have seen this before. And it, it illustrates the horrors of World War II. And yes, it's a difficult film to watch. But you, you think of Normandy Beach for a moment. 
And, and that picture that is given to us is one where the bullets are just flying, right? Explosions everywhere. Planes are soaring overhead. I mean, the waves are choppy, all these kind of things. It is a picture of complete and total chaos, the soldiers there no doubt knew which way was one from the other, right? They didn't know up from down and left from right. It was one of complete and total chaos. Listen, when there is conflict in the church, I want you to have that picture in mind. That picture of confusion. That picture of deception. That picture of horror. Why? Because it is serious. It's serious. But secondly, notice this. Earthly wisdom is marked by selfishness, right? We considered that last week. He says the, the source of this violent war among us is because we desire something for ourselves and we don't get it. Notice the phrase in verse 2, you cannot obtain something. Now, my toddlers that are in our home that are about to go to school, y'all know Evie and Ivy, and because of their age, they are not spared from sermon illustrations, right? Harper and Hudson are saved, right? They understand what's going on. Evie and Ivy aren't even present in here, so they get to be used in sermon illustrations. Evie and Ivy, they, they tend to throw these tantrums. You've seen a toddler tantrum before. You know what I'm talking about. When they want something and just can't get it, they throw a fit. Well, one thing they recently were throwing fits about was uh, their, their cereal bowls in the morning weren't full, now, those are little girls, right? You've seen our little girls. They're tiny little girls. They don't need a full bowl of cereal. And they would come down the steps, and, and for a little while there, they would sit down, and they, they would just shove the bowl away from them, not eating it. I said, what in the world? You ate it yesterday. They would say, I want a big one. That's what they say. Big one. They want a big bowl of cereal. Well, we weren't about to fill that bowl up, and so we got creative in our house. As they threw their tantrum, we found smaller bowls. And so we took the same amount in the big bowl and we put it in the small bowl and put it from them. Guess what? It worked. It worked. They were tricked into thinking, yeah, they got a full bowl of cereal. It's the same amount of food, right? But listen, it was an unreasonable, this is the key, it was an unreasonable tantrum, an unreasonable fit. That's the picture painted here. When there is conflict in the church, it stems from oftentimes an unreasonable desire that is unmet. I know this is difficult, but this is the picture. Thirdly, earthly wisdom is arrogant. It's arrogant. We see this in the last sentence of verse 2 and in verse 3. He says there, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. We're inclined oftentimes not to ask for help. Some of you don't like reading the directions before putting together a piece of furniture, Right? You know who you are. You think you can make it on your own. Well, guess what? When navigating church conflict or difficulty, how arrogant it would be for us to think we can do that on our own. He says you, you desire and you don't get it because you don't ask. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7, Jesus says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In other words, he is always listening to his children. But we also be, must be reminded of what he says in Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, the model prayer, if you will. You remember these words. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, there's a few key words there. It's about his name. 
his kingdom, and his glory. You see, arrogance stems from when we replace his name, his kingdom, and his glory with our own name, our own will, our own kingdom, and our own glory. Right? That's the source of conflict. You desire, you don't get it because you don't ask. And he says in verse 3, even when you do ask, you ask with selfish intentions and motives. Earthly wisdom is arrogant. We should be careful. James concludes this section by really explaining what is at stake. Note this. Conflict in the church exposes a more serious conflict with God. It's more serious than just what's happening in the church. There's a greater conflict at work. You see, conflict is not just a surface-level sort of issue. If we think it is, we have missed the greater spiritual battle that is at play. Notice the force of what James says in verse 4. Don't miss this, brother and sister. He says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. That word is not used by accident by James. It is used intentionally to grab the attention of those that are reading it and hearing it for the first time. You see, throughout this letter, if you've been following along, James has been pastoral in his tone. He's been a a delicate sort of pastor. he's, He's laid things out all the way through, and he's said things like they need to be said. But you might remember him saying oftentimes, brothers and sisters, Remember that? He says that a lot, right? He says, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. And then here in verse 4, for the first time, his tone changes completely when he's talking about conflict. He says, you adulterous people. Note this. This paints a picture that we have to pay attention to. Our love affair with earthly wisdom is spiritual adultery. Our love affair with earthly wisdom, is spiritual adultery. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God's relationship with his people is painted as a marriage. He takes his relationship with his people seriously. And he paints a picture oftentimes of when they stray from him, they have committed adultery. In Jeremiah chapter 3, in verse 20, you might write this verse down. He says... As a woman might betray her lover, so you have betrayed me, house of Israel. Adultery, we would agree, in the earthly sense, is very, very serious. It destroys homes. It destroys families. It wrecks children's lives. It's serious. And what James is saying here is, you adulterous people, this is serious. Don't miss Spiritual adultery has happened. But the tone shifts as we near the end of this first section, and praise God it does. Because we find that nevertheless, God is jealous for our affection. Yes, conflict is serious. Yes, it is spiritual adultery whenever we are in an affair with earthly wisdom, when we love the arrogance that we hold on to, when we love our selfishness and our desires that wage war within us, we find at the end of this section that there is a jealousy from God for our affection. Notice this in verse 
4 and 5. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Listen carefully. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? What he reminds these people of here is that there is a spirit in them that desires them for the glory of God and not themselves. Remember in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the wonder of God's creative activities. After he had created man, after he had formed man in his own image, in verse 7, we read this. The Lord formed the man out of the dust from the ground. And listen to this. He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. Don't miss this. When we are in conflict as the church, when we are pursuing our selfish intentions and desires, and it is wreaking havoc among our body, listen, he tells us there is a spirit within us that he placed within us that desires our affection and our attention. It has been there from the moment that you were created, brother and sister. He still yearns for your affection. Based on what we've seen, conflict is serious. There's an external conflict that is seen in chaotic war and rebellion against one another. But then we saw this internal conflict, this war that is waging within us, one of an all-consuming conflict, a conflict from which it seems there's no way of escape. Understand the helpless picture we see at the end of verse 5. It seems as though there is no hope. But note this as we move forward. We must respond to conflict in a God-honoring way. A God-honoring way. A gospel-honoring way. Let's take in that blessing once again from verse 6. If you miss everything else, don't miss verse 6. Listen to what he says. But he gives greater grace. Five words that change everything. Five words that change everything about us personally. Five words that should change everything about us corporately as his body. He gives greater grace. Notice this, friends. God takes the initiative with his grace. Everything hinges on him, his mercy, his grace. We only bring our sin to the table. We only bring our selfishness to the table. We only bring our internal conflict to the table. But he sweeps off the table and he replaces it with grace. What comfort there is in this one verse. In fact, you could say in this one verse, you could summarize all of the gospel it tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. When we sin, there is more grace. When we feel like we've been beaten, there is more grace. When we sinfully put ourselves ahead of God's agenda and mission, guess what? There is more grace. When we let worry consume us, listen. When we let anxiety consume us, there 
is more grace. When we let our selfishness derail the mission of God through the church, listen, there's more grace. When we focus on what we want and not what God wants, before anything else, there is more grace. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. The grace that we read about in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. This verse that paints a picture of his glorious rescue of us from our sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, brother and sister, that grace is never exhausted. But this verse filled with hope still puts us at a moment of decision. Notice how it concludes in verse 6. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's still a crisis at play. There's still this moment of putting those who are humble and those who are proud at odds with one another. This is no accident. This is a moment of self-examination before the throne of God for every person in this room. So notice these five points of instruction. Listen, we must respond with humble submission is what we find through the rest of this passage of Scripture. He gives us five ways to do that. Now, understand something. This is not like a, you know, check box number one, you move on to box number two. Check box number two, you move on to box number three. That's not the way this works. These are meant to be done consecutively or rather I guess, together, all at the same time, and they are meant to be done again and again and again in the believer's life. That is the picture that is painted here from verses 7 onward. Number one, we must decisively resist the devil. Decisively resist the devil. Look at verse 7. He says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It is fascinating that from the Garden of Eden onward, This has been the essence of sin. This has been the essence of conflict. He has been feeding humanity lie after lie from Genesis 3 even until today. And yet we're surprised when the enemy attacks us. This is the way it's always been, James says. You got to resist the devil. Listen, when you're tempted to speak angrily, resist him. Men, when you are tempted towards lust, Resist him. When you are tempted towards fueling conflict with bitterness and pride, resist him. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, this wonderful instruction is given. Again, personifying the enemy for us. Peter says, be sober-minded and be alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, he is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whomever he may devour. That's the picture here in James chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, resist him. Resist him. Now look at verse 8. We find this. We must repent of sinful isolation. We've got to repent of sinful isolation. So resist the devil. Repent of sinful isolation. We see this in verse 8. He says this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, there's an implication here that if we are going to have to draw near to him, that there is some sort of distance implied, right? 
If there's this call towards nearness, then there must be this distance between us and him. The picture that comes to mind from scripture is the the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You probably know this pretty well, right? You have two sons, and there's the one that takes the father's inheritance, and he's, he's good with what he's been given, right? He's the good steward of those resources. He stays close to home. He's the good boy. And then you got the prodigal, right? And, and that's who we are. Don't miss this in that, that story. We're not the responsible one. We are the one who is the prodigal, and we have strayed from the father, right? He takes the inheritance. We take our inheritance, and we flee our father's presence. But the key verse key verse is in Luke 15 and verse 20. Listen to this. After the son has repented of his sin, it says he got up and he went to his father. But it keeps going. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. That's the picture that we find in James chapter 4 and verse 8. When he says, draw near to me, and there's that promise, I will draw near to you. In other words, if you just take one step, brother or sister, one step of repentance, he covers the rest by his grace. Third, we must purify our perspective. We've got to purify our perspective. The way we look at things has to change. We see this at the end of verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The key here is that cleaning up the outside is not enough. Cleaning up the outward activity is not enough. Notice he begins with, clean up your hands. But he doesn't stop there. You see, the hands here are a picture of that external activity. It's the picture of your actions. But what he says here is there is more at stake here. If you're going to really clean up who you are, if you're really going to purify your thoughts and your activity, then by the grace of God, purify your heart. Purify who you are. How does this happen? This fourth key is critical. We must be grieved over sin. We must be grieved over sin. We see that as we continue into verse 9. We see this miserable picture that is so clearly painting a picture of the seriousness of sin. Look at, look at it with me. Be miserable, James says, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy turned to gloom. Why? Because sin is serious. Now, I want to be careful here. It, it goes without saying that one of the greatest problems with the world we live in is the triviality of sin. In other words, it goes without saying that the world takes sin lightly. You don't have to look very far into our culture to see that. You see, we can readily see that God's design for marriage between one man and one woman, it is in jeopardy, right? We look at the media, we see that. We watch the news, we see that. We scroll through social media, we see that. We know that the rights of the unborn are perilously in jeopardy, right? We see that in our culture. It's easy to see that. The essence of what is moral and upright hangs in the balance, and as you and I know, lawlessness seems to win the day. That's not the challenge of this passage, though. 
Let this scripture jolt you a bit like it did me this week. Just hold on a minute. Consider the context of what James is writing into here. Is James writing to the world? You've been listening to this sermon series for about seven or eight weeks now. Is he writing to the world? Yes or no? No. Who's he writing to? The church. Remember that? He's writing to the church. He's writing to God's people. Listen carefully. While it is easy for us to call for holiness in others, we must be careful to address our own unholiness. The call of this passage is not to look at the outside world and say, woe is them. The call of this passage is to look at us and say, woe is we. we got to be careful. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, said it this way concerning this verse of Scripture. He said, never has there been a revival but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. Be undone by sin. Be grieved over sin. So finally note this. In order to do this, for all of this to come full circle, we got to see God's holiness. we got to understand that he is entirely other than who we are. That is the truth of Scripture from cover to cover. That he is, he is holy and we are not. That he is perfect and just and righteous and we are bitterly sinful. Verses 11 and 12 paint this picture. He says, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you are a judge. And he says this, there is but one lawgiver and judge. Holy God, the Lord. I know a lot of you closed your Bibles, you took your notes. I can hear that, right? Listen, though, just for a minute. Our temptation when we read this or hear this is to look across the pew or look down the aisle or look at the church down the street and say, man, they got, they got some work to do, right? Our temptation is to, to look within our own families and say, man, Uncle Billy, he's got some work to do. Our temptation is to, to look at maybe our church's history and say, man, we did some good work. We, we saw that, that biblical integrity and fidelity was at stake, and we as a church stood up for that. Man, we did good. That's our temptation. But listen, that's not the call of this passage. That's not the way the first readers of this heard it. When James wrote, you adulterous people, the people reading it for the first time said, God help us. And so that's our challenge this morning. God help us. God help me. God help you. God help this church. There is too much at stake, friends, for us to ignore this call to repentance. There is too much at stake for us to ignore his invitation for us. You say, well, pastor, you're supposed to preach to lost people on Sunday morning. You're supposed to call them to the foot of the cross. Indeed. And in all of this, listen, if you don't know Jesus, listen, come to the cross. Well, I hope that what you're hearing me say this morning is that just like you caught in your sin, listen, that's us too. 
If it's not for the grace of God, nothing else would be true about us. He has richly given his grace in place of our sin, and so therefore we are redeemed, so we should live as his redeemed people. That is the call. 